Well, last weekend on the show, we were talking about homes for sale that were under the $1 million price tag. Today, we are talking about an announcement that could lead to about 650 affordable non-market housing units on the old expo lands in Vancouver. And we're going to bring in Michael Geller. He's a Vancouver architect and planner to talk a little bit more about this. Michael, great to have you back on the show. Good morning, Joe. Good morning. I think people might hear this and first think we're still talking about the Expo lands and being a little surprised that we haven't seen development. We haven't seen these decisions made already when we're talking about lands that go back uh, that most people think about uh, in uh, in connection to 1986. Yes. The city of Vancouver has a policy going back to the 80s that said when a developer undertakes a major project, 20% of the units, the housing units, must be affordable. And this applied to the east end of False Creek, the north shore of False Creek, applied to Coal Harbor. And what has happened is that while the federal and provincial governments were making money available, the city was acquiring these sites at a very low cost, and then using the government money to build uh, some co-op housing, lower income rental housing, and so forth. But on the north shore of False Creek, There were six sites that Concord Pacific made available to the city, but the city did not have the money to buy them because there wasn't the money to to, to pay for the new housing. And as a result, these, these sites have been vacant for literally decades. And it's very interesting that what the city has now done is rather than acquire all six sites, which it could do at a relatively low cost, It's chosen just to acquire three of the sites. It's going to let Concord build condos on the other three sites. But Concord is giving the city some money. And now the city is going to presumably rezone the sites and try and put more units on on the three sites. And uh, it's a very, I'm sure it sounds a little bit complicated to people, but but it is a, a very odd timing and somebody who knows these properties much better than I do said to me, the irony is that the city has taken the three worst sites and let Concord keep the three best sites. But, and, but doesn't that make sense? If you're, if you're making a deal with a developer, they're, they're going to want to build the expensive, uh, fancier houses on the nicer sites. Yes, but the city, in fact, had the right to buy all six sites. Right. And, and unfortunately, I did not go to the press conference yesterday So I don't fully understand why the city decided to do this at the very last minute, especially when we have a new mayor coming in who's promising to build 25,000 affordable units over the next 10 years. And many people in the social housing industry wonder, does the city, in fact, have enough land to to do that. So uh, it's interesting they didn't take all six sites. They should have, in my opinion. We also have a new council uh, with council members who are vehemently opposed to building new condo towers, and my guess is will not be happy with this deal. Well, the other thing is they're going to now, if they want to create the same number of sites, they're going to have to um, rezone these sites to much higher densities which also raises a number of other questions for nonprofit housing operators, and that is when you are building nonprofit housing, I mean, is it really a good idea to be having 250 units in one building, or is it better to have smaller buildings and then have them integrated with the market units? 
the irony is when I got your message to come on your show, I was just in the midst of preparing a presentation I'm giving in Ottawa on this whole concept uh, later this month of integrating non-market housing, more affordable housing with market condominiums, that whole poor doors story that uh, you've touched on in the past. Um, because I think many of us do worry about creating very, very large buildings just full of lower-income people. You know, that's not really ideal. Uh, no, it doesn't seem seem that way at all. In this particular deal, a couple of things that stick out for me as well. When we talk about, uh, they say that the rents will vary, that it will be affordable uh, non-market housing, and it's targeted at people that make between 30000 your household income between 30000 and $80,000. We, we've seen this in the past, and then we've seen rents that really don't appear to be affordable to people. How do we know that, or how do they come up with the formula that, that this will actually lead to housing units that people in that bracket can afford and will want to live in? Well, I think, to be fair, in this case to the city, what they are going to be doing is not relying on private developers to build this housing, but rather to work with nonprofits uh, who will build the housing. But they are going to have to get the the cooperation of the federal and provincial government to help, uh, and certainly the federal government, to help fund some of these units. Uh, the, The other thing is a number of these homes are intended to be for families. Originally, they were intended to be for seniors. Uh, now the intention is that a, 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 a significant percentage be for families. And how do you qualify? Is there a, a definition of family? Is it that you have to have children? It can't be. I mean, a lot of people are, are a family of two. Yes. No, when they say families, they are referring to families with children. Uh, do you think this will this will be, uh, be uh, end up being a good thing in in that if they uh, iron out those wrinkles as you said uh, figuring out how the the ratios of of the non market or the the, the uh, social housing to the market housing will it do you think it will it be a good project? What I think is a good thing is that this is part of the presumably twenty five thousand more affordable homes that uh, Kennedy Stewart has promised. I mean the irony is that the city could have developed these lands over the past 20 years. Um, I was partially responsible for a story in the Vancouver Sun, because when the city recently announced the whole Northeast Creek area, they made the point uh, that there was going to be all this affordable housing. And I actually said to the reporter from the Sun, Laurie Cuthbert, hang on a second, there's six vacant sites in North Falls Creek that haven't been built on from the 90s. How come we can be so certain? She did the story, and this this led. I can tell you now, by the way, there's another vacant site in Coal Harbor, right near the uh, Coal Harbor Rec Center. It's been lying fallow since uh, 1991. So there, there are these sites available, but it is in order to build the housing that is truly affordable, the city can't do it on its own. It does depend on the federal and provincial government. And I think that's the key thing as we listen to all these promises. I remember you and I had a conversation just before the election, and I said, you know, there's lots of promises going around, but they're going to take money. Um, An interesting story in Toronto, where the government recently built some affordable housing like this, Then the issue was who gets to live in these units, because it's like winning the lottery if you get to live. The city actually ended up having a lottery. Um, Tens of thousands of people applied to move in, and I think about 80 or 100 units were were made available. 
So that will be another issue. The sad irony, Jill, is that there really are tens of thousands of people right now in Vancouver waiting for units. And uh, so the more we can produce, the better. But th- this was a very odd transaction happening literally, literally at the last minute. And uh, I need to find out more as to why it proceeded the way it did. It did seem, I, I totally agree with you, it seemed like an, an odd announcement for uh, the outgoing mayor's final news conference, didn't it? He did, but maybe he he did want to make it appear when he sees people on the street. Yes, I was right last, right to the last minute, trying to increase the stock. One postscript on this: and ten years ago, I ran for city council, and during that election campaign, the president of Concord Pacific took Suzanne Anton, Peter Ladner, and myself for a ride in their Mercedes van. And where did we go? We went and looked at these six sites because 10 years ago, uh, Terry Huey and the Concord people were trying to see if they could reach a deal. Ironically, about six years ago, I was an expert witness in a lawsuit involving these sites because there was a bit of a dispute within Concord's organization as to who exactly owned them and what might happen. The irony is that as an expert witness, I predicted that something like this would happen because the Concord uh, would make a deal with the city because the city simply doesn't have enough money to build all the affordable housing that it would like to build. So we'll have to keep watching and see if uh, uh, these homes will not be available for at least four years, in my opinion, only because the sites will have to be rezoned. The people who live around these sites are going to complain that the buildings are going to be much bigger than they ever expected. It will then take about at least uh, another year to get all the permits and at least two years to build the units. That is uh, very true. We'll be uh, watching and see what happens next in this ongoing saga. Michael, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Better palliative care, higher quality palliative care could help to extend the lives of people who are homeless and who are dealing with a terminal illness. That is one of the findings of a new study out of the University of Victoria. And joining us on the line to talk about this is a professor in the School of Nursing at UVic, also scientist with the palliative care program for Fraser Health. Professor Kelly Stajduhar joins us on the line. Professor, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Jill, for the invitation. Talk a little bit, if you can, about this study. And and who were you looking at as far as trying to figure out terminally ill uh, people, how they're treated and what the outcomes are like when we're talking about that specific, uh, the elderly, uh, the terminally ill homeless people? Yeah, well, we followed uh, uh, 25 people who we would call uh, homeless or barely housed. So uh, people who were um, kind of living at the margins, I guess, and uh, basically had been diagnosed with an illness in which we would expect that they would die within about a year's time. And we spent uh, over 300 hours with these folks um, and doing repeated interviews with them to try and get a sense of what their experiences were as they were trying to access the healthcare system at the end of life. Um, and, uh, and that's the basis of, uh, of a report that we released uh, earlier, um, earlier this week. 
really trying to f- shine a light on the issues that these folks face as they're coming to the end of their lives and, and, uh, and trying to come up with some good solutions uh, to help them. So, so probably not a huge surprise that somebody who is homeless or, or challenged when it comes to housing, you're, you're going to have more challenges probably yeah. in every aspect. Uh, so probably not a huge surprise that this is also no. an area that was more challenging. Uh, but what specifically did you find about the, the type of care or the quality of treatment that people would get? Yes, well, I think, um, you know, all of the issues that come about for these folks of being discriminated against and stigmatized all come out also at the end of life. Um, And so we found people, you know, having difficulty having their symptoms uh, believed. So, for example, if somebody presented to the emergency department with pain, which is not unusual when people have a terminal illness, uh, they would be having their pain needs uh, not met and being turned away or, or being said, you know, it's uh, you're just trying to seek drugs or whatever. So all those judgments existed there. And, uh, and I think the... You know, the kind of sad thing is uh, the the fact that people were in the study meant that, in fact, they did end up getting some palliative care at the end of their lives, which actually turned out to be a good situation. And if people have a chance to read the report, they'll see a story of Cliff, which was, uh, you know, just basically a guy saying to us, oh my gosh, I'm so happy that I got this diagnosis of cancer because people uh, will believe me now when I say that I have pain. And it's just a kind of sad state, I think, uh, that people have to be experiencing things like this. Uh, definitely. And, and also because, uh, and you, t- you just touched on this, the, the fact that they were getting the palliative care because they were participating in the study, uh, yeah. then it must make you wonder there was th- that there must be people who didn't participate in the study and, and for that reason alone didn't get this care. We totally know that there's lots of people out there who could really benefit from palliative approaches to care that aren't getting it. And so we're really trying to work now on, you know, what's the action going forward so that we can get people access to the care that they need, because these are not folks that... Uh, come knocking on our doors for help. Uh, for the most part, people try to avoid the healthcare system because they've had bad experiences with it. And so, you know, we have to go out and find these people. And the the issue of trust and developing those kind of relationships is so profound in this community. And uh, and so we're just trying to move things forward now to make things just a little bit better so it's not too little too late for people. Uh, there was another story that was uh, highlighted in the report as well because uh, and what what stuck out to me was it was somebody who was could have could access the care, could get a, a palliative care, but because of the housing situation uh, being at risk of infection and because it wasn't a perfect situation, uh-huh. didn't. Uh, that seems, because you would think, I think most people would think the hurdle would be getting to the point of getting the care. And like you said, being believed and getting the care. But you don't often think of the hurdle being, well, you're too at risk of getting an infection, so we're not going to give this to you. Yeah, and, and I think you're referring to a story of uh, of a gentleman named Terry Willis in Victoria who was in the news because he was uh, he has a diagnosis of a terminal illness, but is getting some cancer chemotherapy and was told that he wasn't able to get the chemotherapy because of where he lived. And I th- I think that there um, I th- I think that the health authority deemed that he could have the chemotherapy in the building in which he lived, but uh, 
you know, can you imagine being somebody who has cancer and is being told, sorry, you know, you can't get your treatment because the place that you live, uh, you know, isn't isn't clean enough. And I mean, that's these folks have enough to deal with already then to kind of have that kind of blow is uh, is not that great. And by the way, Terry Willis did get new housing and and that's a good, you know, a good thing. But mm-hmm. um you know, these people face tremendous hurdles in trying to get care. And many of these folks have very complicated lives. And and um, they're also, for the main part, living in poverty. So they don't have the same kind of access to the kinds of things that you and I might enjoy. Um, and so it's a struggle for them every day to just survive. And in fact, you know, a really key finding in our study is that these folks don't even really focus on the fact that they're dying because they're so busy trying to find food. They're so busy trying to find shelter for the night that the fact that they're dying kind of just goes off the radar. Hmm. Uh, what What do you hope people take away from this or what change could be made uh, from these findings that would uh, at least help out uh, in some way uh, for this population? Yeah, I think we need, uh, well, we we have sort of three high-level recommendations in the report and, you know, one being to kind of address uh, barriers that people are facing to getting formal health care, but also really trying to think about how we can integrate palliative approaches to care um, in these people where they live and where they die. So really building on other Canadian models, including things that are happening in Vancouver around, you know, getting kind of mobile palliative care services out to where people are living, because we really need to wrap services around people and provide support where they're at. And that means going and giving care wherever people happen to be. I think that's really important and to and to support the the inner city service providers who, you know, are on the ground every day providing care and support to these folks, but and are, are you know, witnessing some really sometimes awful deaths of people and, you know, and they're not being supported in the in the good work that they do either. All right. Uh, if people want to check the report out, can they access it? Uh, yeah, they can access it. Um, it's uh, up on our website at uh, UVic. Um, I'm just trying to find just if you if people go www.uvic.ca, they should be able to find it. Otherwise, they can just uh, Google my name or or uh, shoot me an email at kis at uvic.ca. All right. Well, Professor, thank you so much for joining us and talking about this today. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Jill. While it is pouring rain, there will be people trying to get home from whatever outing they have gone on a Saturday night, and there will very likely be a lot of frustration as people wait for taxis and try and find a way to get home. This past week, we did hear a bit of a, well, some people are calling it an update. I don't know if we can go that far. Uh, in a moment, we're going to bring in Ian Tostenson with Ride Sharing for BC to talk about this. But this is what we heard out of Victoria when the issue of Ride sharing was brought up in the legislature. Mr. Speaker, we said there will be legislation this fall. There will be legislation this fall. But it was more complicated than we had anticipated. Multiple uh, statutes have to be amended to ensure that ride hailing is brought in fairly, as you suggest. And I'm confident that uh, when the bill is passed and we can get the, uh, the insurance products in place, we can make sure the background checks are there to protect the traveling public, ride hailing will be in British Columbia. Uh, that last voice, uh, the Premier of British Columbia. So now let us uh, bring in Ian Tostingson with Ride Sharing for BC. Uh, Ian, good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. How are you? 
very well. And uh, what do you think about the comments? Uh, we're still waiting to see the legislation. We're told we'll see it by the end of the month. Uh, how confident are you in that last statement that we will have ride sharing in BC? Well, the number of days the legislature has are limited, so we're going to have to really push this. I mean, I, I do believe the premier. I think if he doesn't do this, he's going to have bigger problems in his hands because, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know anybody who doesn't want this to happen. That doesn't need this to happen. I think all the arguments about why we should have ride sharing are, are in the book now. I think everybody understands that it's so important from a safety point of view and transportation point of view. So. I'm going to take the premier's word. I mean, I think he's pretty good at that. What what we're concerned about is, you know, when he starts talking about how complicated the legislation was, then it's ICBC, and then we have to do proper checks. He's slowing the process down because I think he wants to get, um, I think he wants another year, frankly. I don't think they want to see this until next fall, and we want to see it by December, which I think might be a bit aggressive. But we got to push him. we got to push him hard because still... They're playing out the, you know, the whole politics with the taxi owners, and that's what this is all about. And the Board of Trade, uh, about six months ago, they actually wrote the sort of legislative framework that the government had to follow and gave it to the government and said, look, here's all the things you have to do. ICBC, I'm told, uh, even when the Liberals were in power, they were ready to go with the insurance package. So none of this stuff is that complicated. And certainly, you know, the Premier mentioned, um, you know, security of the public well. You know, I think now, since time has arisen, since the introduction of Uber and Lyft in the world, that they've sorted out these problems with respect to security. I mean, there's been some incidences, but there are, you know, in the case of taxis as well, too. So that's really not an issue. And I think you could probably argue that you're safer in, in Rudson than you are in a public taxi. So, you know, the key here, I think, Jill, is like what you're doing and keeping a focus on this and, and holding the politicians to, uh, to account here is really important. It, it is, and you mentioned this as well, the word, that he said it was so complicated, and I get it. They have to, it's going to be legislation that deals with all of these things, whether the insurance model and how it's dealt with. But the concern is, with only a limited number of days left in the legislature in this, in this current sitting, it could very well be introduced, but it's a matter of getting it passed in so that it can even happen a year from now. Is still, if you look at the timing of it, they're, they're going to have to step on it. Well, that's right, because not being a student of this kind of stuff, but they pass the legislation, then it has to go to a committee, and then and they have to sort it out, be debated, and then it has to be approved. So there's a fair amount of work, and I understand that that's more work even outside of ride-sharing yet to do. The, um, the transportation... Uh, board, it seems to be kind of slow too. The other issues out there is that, remember you talked about we're going to have 300 more taxi cabs in, in Vancouver by December. Well, they've only licensed 160, and I don't know what the reason is, whether it's a tie-up in in the approvals, whether people even want to even have a taxi license anymore, I don't know. But I, you know, I don't think we're going to meet that benchmark, so we're going to have this disappointment again with the cold weather and Christmas coming that, like you said at the beginning, the rain will be here tonight. We'll be standing outside with our umbrellas wondering why we can't get a ride. <laughs> and, and you're right. And so at this point, from what I understand, there have only been 160 applications. And that makes sense. Why would you apply for a taxi license at this point in time, not knowing what's going to be happening with ride sharing and uh, go ahead, go down that path, uh, n- knowing that it's being promised, uh, but not knowing how the landscape's going to look, say, say a year from now. And also, I think people see through that in that uh, you've said this before, too, ride sharing is is brought in and where it works elsewhere in the world it 
compliments the taxi industry. It doesn't try and quash it. Uh, But people, from what I'm hearing from people, and it's one of the topics you can go to people on the street and everybody, like you said, everybody says, yes, bring it in. Uh, They they want ride sharing. They don't want more taxis. Oh, no, absolutely. And I I learned something that's kind of interesting. Have you ever heard about the first mile, last mile? And it, what, what that is, is it refers to the, you know, how you get to your transportation. So say your public transportation. And then once your transportation gets to your destination, how you get from there to where you're going, to so your house or wherever. And so what I was just reading is uh, in uh, just in a little city of South Barrier, Ontario, they're using Uber now as an alternative to public transit because it's so convenient. And so, and in, in our case in BC, um, you're right. You, I try to get a, a ride to public transit, and then when you get off the public transit in Burnaby or Surrey, how do you get home? That's why the scene is so effective. It just it, it absolutely complements both public transit and also complements taxi drivers. It takes the pressure off the taxi drivers who are limited in their ability to, uh, you know, they work in certain areas and certain times, and they're very restricted. And that's the model they work in. That model will continue to be successful for them if they, A, become competitive, and B, get involved with this sort of new future here. I mean, we're going to have, I used to think we'd have driverless cars next before we can pass this stage. I think we're going to get to flying cars by the time BC approves this. It's ridiculous how long it's taking to do because there's no downside to this. There absolutely is no downside. And, and Rod Sherling now in BC is not advocating anything that would hurt the tax industry. We respect the tax industry, but... You know, ride sharing is a different mode of transportation, serving a completely different audience and need. So, yeah, you're right. Uh, what do you do at this point? Like you said, your group would prefer to have this in place by next month. It doesn't appear that's going to happen. Uh, other than than speaking about it and keeping the pressure on government, what do you do? Well, I think you know, ridesharingnow.com, or ridesharingnow.com, and be if you go to that website. You know, that puts pressure on your MLAs, and it's really easy. So for anybody listening, just go to that website, ridesharenow.com. You can put in your postal code. It sends a, a letter to your MLA and say, please get this going. So right now, it's probably more important than ever to put that pressure on the MLAs. Because I think, you and I talked about this, Jill, I think all three parties agree on this. I don't think anybody's hanging out by saying we don't want to do this. So that's going to give them some confidence and get the legislation legislation in then we're going to have to make sure they didn't pull any weird tricks on the legislation. That that ride sharing came out as a competitive, fair, ubiquitous product that allows big and small companies to operate. Um, and then we're going to have to push on timing. I think that's the thing. The, the key right now is the legislation. Um, get the government focused on doing this, and um, and then once then we'll go to work on the timing issue. You know, I'm saying Christmas. Is, is that real? I don't know. Uber and Lyft for sure could be up and running by Christmas. They tell me, but. It's probably more, you know, if we even push for the spring, it would be better than waiting for next fall because next fall could become, as you said, maybe not even next Christmas. And that's just unacceptable. Are you concerned, you mentioned this with the legislation, because the Premier was asked specifically, will the legislation lead to ride-sharing as we see it elsewhere? Uh, because that's that term made in B.C. and the fact that he's mm. saying it's so complicated. Uh, are you concerned that it's going to be ride-sharing legislation, but it's going to have certain restrictions as in number of cars, where you can operate, if it's going to be uh, focusing more on these cater cabs rather than what we're already seeing operating elsewhere? 
Yeah, there is a concern for that. Um, but, uh, boy, I tell you, that's going to be a, an uphill battle for the premier to sell that to the public by saying, you know, we have ride sharing, which is, you know, basically an open system, to close the system. And if he, if he does anything that puts this in, that even looks like it's a, just another, a taxi industry with another name, I think he's going to be in big trouble. I think the politicians will be in big trouble over that. That's not what we want. We, we don't want that. We want to be able to take people to Burnaby and North, the North Shore and come back and have this ubiquitous transportation system. So I think his common sense is a pretty common sense guy. I, I can't see him doing that. I, I mean, I just, I, I, if he does, I, I'll, uh, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I don't know what I would do. I would just be astounded if he did that because that would be against the entire spirit of ride sharing worldwide. So I'm, I'm hoping he's not going to, well, I'm confident he's not going to do that. All right. Uh, Ian, I'm sure we'll talk to you again uh, once the legislation is brought in. We're promised uh, it will be done or introduced at least uh, before the end of the month. Thank you so much for your time this morning. Appreciate it. Always, yeah, Jill. Thank you, too. The B.C. Liberals are holding their party convention this weekend. So we are bringing in Keith Baldry, Global B.C.'s chief political reporter, to talk a little bit more about this. Good morning, Keith. Morning, Joe. What are they going to be doing? Uh, Hearing the word rebranding a lot when talking about this convention. Yeah, literally rebranding, because I think they're even coming up with a new logo, uh, a new slogan, I think. Uh, They really want to sort of get beyond their loss uh, in 2017's election. And talking to a couple MLAs yesterday, uh, guys like Jazz Joel Hall from Richmond, uh, Queensboro, saying the party really has to renew itself and get over the fact that, uh, clinging to this notion that they they really won the election because they had more votes and more seats, when in fact they they are now the opposition, they have to rebuild, regroup, and rebrand. And uh, he makes the point that also some generational change. They've got to come in with some younger folks, some new folks, new faces, and uh, sort of uh, evolve away from the the old brand that was there for 16 years, which really, I think, has been kicked to the curb uh, by the voters. And uh, the Liberals are in a, I think they're in a bit of a bind right now. They are the opposition. They've got some fundraising problems. You know, the days of massive amounts of corporate money coming their way are over. Uh, they're not very good at private uh, fundraising. They've got to get better at that. So uh, this is sort of the, the beginning of the next phase for the BC Liberal Party. It may well stretch beyond the, the next election cycle. They may be in opposition for some time. Uh, they've mused about the the idea of changing the name, but have mm-hmm. gone, gone against that. So do, you, do you think that, that was the right move to stick with the name? You know, that's a good question. Um, I don't think there's any consensus in that group about what the name should be. Uh, certainly, if we go to proportional representation, and who knows where we're headed on that front, uh, the name could very well change. And uh, it, it, that's always been a discussion in that party, because uh, it, it really was an, it arti- it's an artificial name in that it, it was the old B.C. Liberal Party that was uh, in a surprise to everyone uh, at the beginning of the campaign in 1991, suddenly made itself the opposition party in B.C. And that basically, the free, the free enterprise forces basically coalesced around that, that party in the 1990s under Gordon Campbell, and that became the reborn social credit party. There's always been a free enterprise coalition party that runs, uh, is, is counter to the NDP in this province. Uh, it was first the social credit party, which again was a completely artificial enterprise, it was W.A.C. Bennett taking over a tiny, obscure party called Social Credit that nobody really knew what it stood for. 
and turned it into, you know, the Free Enterprise Coalition. Same thing happened to the B.C. Liberals. So it's certainly not uh, inconceivable that another name could replace the B.C. Liberals going forward. But I don't think that's going to happen at this convention. And, and different in that this is the first, is this the first big convention under the new rules as far as donations and yes. and such? Yes, it is. And they've got a, a fairly good crowd. I'm more than 1,000 people there. So uh, the numbers aren't, they're not hurting for numbers. But uh, the last disclosures we got from Elections BC about fundraising, the NDP was beating the Liberals about two to one when it came to uh, fundraising from individuals. Hmm. And, and any surprise there? No, because the Liberals for years had built their fundraising arm on the strength of uh, corporate fundraisers, you know, $500, $1,000, $10,000 a plate dinners. The NDP had built their fundraising uh, through union donations, for sure, but also through private uh, individual donations. And so when the unions and corporations were taken away, all that was left was really individuals, while the NDP had a history of having more individuals uh, donating to them than the BC Liberals. So the BC Liberals have a serious catch-up. Uh, to go here on that front. And, and, you know, until we, I think a couple of years go by, when they get that taxpayer subsidy of several million dollars a year, uh, I'm not even sure the Liberals are in a position to fight an election should one happen today. And what about the popularity or support? It's not as though they're doing any kind of leadership challenge or leadership voting, but how is Andrew Wilkinson doing, do you think, within the party as the leader? I think the jury's out. I don't think... Uh, He's been overly impressive. I think the opposition leader always has some disadvantages. Uh, it's tough to get profile. It's tough to carve out some notoriety. He doesn't get a lot of media coverage, and therefore a lot of people don't know who he is. Uh, the vast majority of the public do not know who Andrew Wilkinson is. Uh, this does give him a chance, though, to sort of reveal himself to the party faithful in a way that uh, I think will exceed that of the of the leadership convention. Well, it was that was really like a, a two hour event, uh, the leadership convention, and this one is you know a day, a day and a half, and it's uh, a chance for him to uh, mingle with uh, with the delegates and get to know people and, and show who who he is. But I think he's got some challenges. Andrew Wilkinson does. He's going to be debating John Horgan on Thursday night here on NW and on global tv and that's going to be a chance for him to sort of maybe that's his coming out party but uh john horgan's a tough tough communicator tough guy to beat on a debate platform and that's that's going to be wilkinson's challenge uh it's be a bit of a love-in for him today but uh he'll be up against it on thursday night and more so it seems uh, rather than uh, the convention he's going to be more uh, not judged i guess but that that is going to be kind of not uh, also not make or break but that's where people are going to be looking to him for that leadership isn't it it is. That's his first big moment, even though you know, we have question period, but that's not really the form that uh, most people view, will view him. This will be the first one. It's going to be, you know, be live, then it'll be replayed again. And, uh, and I think you're right to say, use the word judge, he will be judged in this. Um, and it's, uh, it's going to be uh, incumbent on him to show, show his mettle against uh, John Horgan, who I think is a very good debater, very good communicator, very sure of himself. And it'll be interesting to see what tack Andrew Wilkinson takes. Is it all about attacking the process of electoral reform, or is it talking about the concepts of first pass the votes versus proportional representation? It's only got a half hour. I'm not sure which route he's going to go. And that's a good question, because there are, there are issues with both of them, and I guess it's deciding which one resonates more with voters. Yeah, no, there, there are flaws to both systems, and there are advantages and merits to both systems. And 
the trick for everybody is going to be how how much detail do you go into when you discuss uh, you know for uh, proportional representation? How far into the weeds do you go for dual? You know, do you really get into discussing dual proportional or rural urban, or do you just discuss the concept of proportional representation uh, versus first past the post? It's uh, it's going to be interesting at which which point each leader wants to emphasize on Thursday night. But uh, today, I expect Wilkinson to attack the process, uh, saying it's a flawed referendum process, it's stacked, it's rigged. Uh, look for him also today to talk about um, perhaps changing ICBC. He's dropped some hints on that, and that could be his, one of his major announcements today. Perhaps they want to go the privatization route with ICBC, because I think the liberals have identified ICBC is a ticking time bomb for the NDP, because our rates are about to go up significantly over the next few years, and I'm sure the Liberals will try to lay that at the feet of the New Democrats at every opportunity starting today. All right. Uh, lots happening uh, over there today. Keith, look forward to your reports on that. We'll let you go. Thank you so much. Okay. Take care, Jill.